0: Well, Doug Batchelor, in his book, Determining the Will of God, Determining the Will of God, Doug Bachelor tells the story of a farmer who was desperately trying to figure out God's will for his life. This farmer was a Christian, and so he wanted to know what God's will for his life was. And so every day, the farmer would be on his field, and he would be working, and as he would work, he would pray. He would say, God, please show me your will. Please reveal your will. Um, Help me to understand what your will is. Well, one day as he was praying this prayer, he looked up in the sky, and he saw this interesting cloud above him. When he examined the cloud more carefully, he found that it resembled the letter P. Hmm, that's interesting. He thought to himself, P, what what could that possibly mean? Well, then right next to it was another cloud in the shape of the letter C. P-C, oh God, what's this all about? What What does that mean? And then suddenly it occurred to him, PC, it means preach Christ. I'm not supposed to be a farmer. I'm in the wrong job, I'm in the wrong profession. I am meant to be a preacher and tell other people all about Jesus Christ. And so immediately this energy went through him. Uh, He felt like he was on the right track. He was following God's will. And so he sold his field, he sold his equipment, he gave up farming, and he became a traveling preacher. Of course, he didn't have a church that uh, he was the pastor at, so he would go to any church that would have him. If the pastor was out of town, he would preach in the pastor's place. The problem was, pretty quickly this guy could tell that he was not an effective preacher. Uh, Preaching simply was not in his gifting. Um, His sermons were disorganized, his illustrations didn't make sense, his delivery was off. And he could tell that the congregation was not resonating with his messages. And so eventually he gave up preaching and he went back to what he knew. He went back to farming. So, sometime later, his friends came to him and they said, Well, what happened? We thought that God told you in the clouds to be a preacher. And he said, No, I finally realized it. PC did not mean preach Christ, it meant plant corn. When I shared that story at the last service, I had some groans, so I appreciate that nobody's groaning right now. (laughs) Somebody said that was one of my better ones. (laughs) But there is a point to that. At times, it's, it's up here on the screen, at times, it's hard to figure out the will of God. Isn't it? Let's be real. At times, it's hard to figure out the will of God. As Christians, we talk a lot about God's will. We say God has a will, and of course, we want to follow that will. We want to obey that will. We want to bend our lives to that will. But, so what do we do? We pray for clarity. We ask God to reveal that will to us. We look for signs. We ask for wisdom to read and interpret and understand the signs. But how can we be sure that we're following God's will? And not only that, but how specific is God's will? How precise is God's will? For example, does God have a will for every single area of our lives, including whether and who we marry, how many children we're supposed to have, if we're supposed to have children, what our job's gonna be, what our career's gonna be, where we're gonna live, how we're gonna spend our retirement or our free time, or does God let us decide some of those things for ourselves? How does free will come into play? What is the scope of God's will? How broad is God's will? Folks, these are the questions that we're gonna be examining today. And as we examine all these questions, uh, we're going to do so in the context of a new sermon series uh, that I'm pretty excited about. I've been looking forward to the series all year. Uh, The name of the series, quite simply, it's up here, is God's Will Unraveling the Mystery. Doesn't that sound interesting and intriguing? God's Will Unraveling the Mystery. It's my sense as a pastor that the will of God tends to be one of the most mysterious aspects of faith. The will of God tends to be one of the most mysterious aspects of faith. And so what we're going to be doing over the next three weeks, uh, this is going to be a three-week series. It'll take us through September and the first week of October. Uh, We're going to be looking at Scripture, the Bible, trying to see what the Bible has to say about the will of God. Now, obviously, we are not going to understand the entire mystery behind God's will. I want to make that clear. We are not going to understand the entire mystery behind God's will. God's will will always, to a degree, be mysterious to us, but hopefully, through these messages, by God's grace, we will have a little bit more clarity. Sound good to you? And in today's message, uh, we're going to focus on God's will for our individual lives. Here's the question I want us to ask What does it mean to say that God has a will for my life? What does it mean to say that God has a will for my life? Well, as I'm sure we all know, there is diversity within Christianity. There are a plethora of different voices. And so over the years, not everybody has answered this question in the same way. Adam Hamilton, a lot of you have heard me mention that name. Uh, He pastors Church of the Resurrection, which is a United Methodist congregation in Kansas City, Missouri. He's also a prolific writer. In one of his books, Adam Hamilton points out that Christians in general have offered three different responses, three different responses in answer to this question, what does it mean to say that God has a will for my life? So what I want to do this morning is I want to offer these three responses, and I want us to examine their merits. And so the first response, and if you're taking notes, I invite you to write these things down. There's also a sermon notes section in the bulletin, if you find that to be helpful. Um, but the first response is what's been called determinism. Can you all say this with me? Determinism. Determinism, the the secular way of saying this would be fatalism, but determinism, theologically, is associated with Calvinism. Um, Some of you have heard of Calvinism. Calvinism is a branch of Christian theology named in honor of John Calvin. Uh, He was a Protestant reformer. He was a French theologian, as well as a lawyer. Uh, He lived back in the 1500s. And in a nutshell, determinism slash Calvinism claims that God has a predetermined plan for our lives. God has a predetermined plan for our lives, and we as human beings have no choice but to follow this predetermined plan. From before we were born, from before we took our first breath, this perspective says God had a pre-written script for us, the things that we would say. The things that we would do. The things that would happen to us. The experiences that we would have. And we are basically actors. We are following this pre-written script. Now, did we write the script? No, according to determinism, Almighty God wrote this script. And we have no choice but to follow it. And by the way, this means that anything that happens to us in life, the good things, the bad things, everything in between, anything that happens to us has nothing to do with free will. Free will does not exist according to determinism. Free will, according to this perspective, it's a ridiculous concept because it's made up. It's an illusion. It's not real. Because everything in this universe, down to the last detail, has been predetermined in advance by God. And there are a number of sincere Christians. For the record, I'm not one of them and I'll say more about that in a moment, Uh, but there are a number of sincere Christians who believe that determinism is an accurate reflection of scriptural teaching and how God works in the world. In fact, I remember uh, about four years ago, I was in the car, and I was driving, and I was stuck in traffic on Highway 192 uh, in the Orlando area. Some of you have been there before. And so I was just kind of flipping through the various radio stations and Um, All of a sudden, I came across this sermon that was being broadcast from Chicago, and so I started to listen to the sermon. And I'll never forget this. During the sermon, the preacher basically said this. He said, I want you to know, he's talking to his listeners, I want you to know, whatever you're going through right now in life, whatever season you find yourself in, you are there, he said, by divine appointment. That sounds pretty theological, doesn't it? You are there by divine appointment. In other words, you are there because God determined that you would be there. Hmm. As I heard that, I thought to myself, uh I'm not so sure about that. For example, and folks, I apologize that these examples I'm gonna offer are extreme. I'm not trying to shock us, but sometimes the extreme examples can help us to think about things critically? For example, what if somebody is a sex trafficking victim? Are we trying to say that sex trafficking victims, and unfortunately there are a lot of sex trafficking victims in this country and around the world, are we trying to say that a sex trafficking victim is where they are because of divine appointment? Because the God of love revealed in Jesus Christ determined in advance that they would be there? instead of saying that they're there because of the horrible things that other people have done? Or what about Nicholas Cruz? That's a name we've been hearing on the news recently, right? Nicholas Cruz right now was on trial because of unspeakable things that he did at a South Florida school on Valentine's Day of 2018. Are we trying to say that Nicholas Cruz is where he is because of divine appointment? Instead of saying that he's there because of the choices that he made? You see, this is one of the main problems with determinism. And as I said a moment ago, determinism is not what I believe, and it's also not what the United Methodist Church teaches. One of the main problems with determinism, it's up here, determinism makes God responsible for every evil thing. If somebody is a sex trafficking victim, we're saying that God determined before that person was born that they would be a sex trafficking victim one day. If somebody is murdered, we're saying that God wrote into that person's script that he or she would be murdered. And if somebody is a murderer, if somebody commits murder, we're saying that God made that person commit murder. We're also saying that God is responsible behind every atrocity that has ever happened in this world. Like the Holocaust. Or September 11, 2001. We had the 21st anniversary of 9-11 last week. Again, to me, that does not jive with the God of love that we have come to know in Scripture, revealed in Jesus Christ. A second problem, by making God responsible for every evil thing, it removes personal responsibility for our actions. How can we hold somebody responsible for committing a crime if our theology says God made that person commit that crime? They had no choice in the matter. How can we be mad at somebody for what they did if our theology says God's the one who made them do it? And then finally, a third problem with determinism... It robs life of any sense of meaning. It really doesn't matter what we do, because whatever we do, we've been programmed to do it. We're no longer human beings who make choices. Instead, we're basically robots. We're puppets on a string. That's not the overarching message of the Bible. And so to me, this perspective, as I said, it's not a great option, determinism. Well, a second perspective that Christians have come up with when answering this question, what does it mean to say that God has a will for my life? A second perspective is what we might call God's perfect plan. Now, unlike determinism, this perspective affirms free will. It says, yes, human beings are free, we make choices, but at the same time, this perspective says, God has a perfect plan for our lives. There is a certain way God would like your life to unfold, God would like my life to unfold, God has a perfect plan when it comes to every single area, including whether and who we marry, how many children we're supposed to have, if we're supposed to have children, or where we're going to live, what our job's going to be, how we're going to spend our retirement. God has a perfect plan for all of this, and God's desire is that we would use our free will to follow this perfect plan. Now, we don't know the details of this perfect plan. Only God knows all the details, so it's incumbent upon us to pray and to seek God and to ask God to reveal those details to us. Now, the upside to this perspective is that it affirms free will. It also says that that God has an interest in human beings and in human lives, which is good. The downside to this perspective, the major downside, is that if we step away from God's perfect plan in just one area, it could mess up the whole thing. For instance, let's say that I'm a senior in high school. I was already a senior in high school, but let's just say for argument's sake, I'm a senior in high school. I'm 17 years old. I'm thinking about colleges and life after graduation. And God's perfect plan for my life is to enroll at the University of Central Florida. Do we have any UCF alums in the room? Uh, God's perfect plan for me is to enroll at UCF and become a knight and to major in business, study business. God's perfect plan as well is for me to join the Wesley Foundation. We heard from Pastor Erwin Lopez last week who leads that foundation. So God wants me to join that foundation, and while I'm there, I'm going to meet a young woman. We're going to date, and we're going to fall in love, and we're going to get married. And let's say that her parents have a company, a business that they've started. And God's perfect plan for me after graduation is that she and I, after we get married, uh, they would mentor us, and they would train us, and they would show us the ropes, and then they'll retire, and then we'll take over that company, and we'll lead that company into the future. And then one day when we retire, our children would take over that company, and that company will stay in the family for years and years to come. That's God's perfect plan for Christopher Michael Jones. Well, let's say as a 17-year-old kid, I'm not listening to God, and so I use my free will not to go to the University of Central Florida as God intends, but instead to go to the University of Florida, become a Gator. I'm sorry, Gator fans, this is not God's perfect plan for me. So I'm in the wrong school, and because of that, I don't meet the person I'm supposed to marry. Maybe I marry somebody else. I'm also in the wrong job, aren't I? And let's say that this woman and I have children together. Does that mean that God didn't want us to have these children? That's kind of messy. And so, gosh, this whole thing has just been messed up by one decision that I made when I was 17 years old. That puts a lot of pressure on me, doesn't it? It also boxes God in. And it restricts God to moving within just one plan instead of saying that God can move within multiple plans. So to me, this perspective is not a good option either. Uh, The the determinist perspective is not a good option. Uh, The perfect plan perspective is not a good option. So what's the alternative? I'm so glad you asked that question. The alternative, a third perspective, one that I personally subscribe to, that I believe honors scripture, is collaboration. Collaboration. What's the definition of collaboration? Come on, folks. To work together, to partner with somebody, to join with somebody, to lock forces with somebody. And when it comes to the story of our lives, this is how I believe God works. You see, it's not that God has a predetermined script that he forces us to follow, and it's not that God has a perfect plan, and if we screw up in one area, well, then we screwed up the whole thing, It's that God invites us by grace. And I want to emphasize those two words, by grace. This is an invitation that Almighty God gives to us as human beings. God invites us by grace to join with Him, to partner with Him, to collaborate with Him in the writing of our stories. Now, God could have a general outline of what He would like our life to look like, how He would like our life to unfold, However, God also expects us to use our freedom. And I want to be clear, free will is not something that we have generated ourselves. Free will has been built into us by God because it's a corollary of love. God expects us to use our freedom to fill in some of the details and take advantage of the opportunities God puts before us each day. Collaboration. And above all, of course, God's desire as you and I live our lives is that we would seek God, that we would follow God, and that we would obey the great commandment to love God, love our neighbor. There are many examples of collaboration that we find in the scriptures. But one example that I want to highlight to us, and actually this should be pretty familiar to us because Pastor Will uh, preached on this story just a few weeks ago when we finished our series on women in the Old Testament. That would be the story of Esther, Esther. Uh, If you're not familiar with the story, Uh, maybe you missed that message esther's story takes place 470 years before jesus 470 bc or so give or take a few years now uh what had happened during this time is the persian empire this was after the babylonians the persian empire had come in and conquered the area where god's people were living um, and taken it over and so esther was this young jewish woman and she lived within the persian Empire. And the king at this time was this guy by the name of Xerxes, King Xerxes. Now, King Xerxes had a larger-than-life personality. He had a reputation for getting what he wanted. He didn't like it when people stood up to him. And so at the beginning of the story, Xerxes feels as if his wife disrespects him. Now, in truth, she does not disrespect him. She simply recognizes herself as a human being and does not allow Xerxes to dehumanize her, but because of his patriarchal attitudes, his chauvinism, his sexism, he feels as if she disrespects him. And so he banishes her. Actually, it's a little bit ambiguous as to what happens to her. We don't know if she was executed. The way the text reads, it seems as if she's banished. And so he banishes her. Well, then he wants a wife. And so he creates this empire-wide beauty pageant. This is an amazing use of tax dollars. This this empire-wide beauty pageant in order to find a new bride. And so Esther, this young woman, she enters this pageant, this contest, and out of all the women, she is selected as the new wife of King Xerxes to replace the other woman who was banished. Well, then what happens as the story develops? There's a bad guy. Every good story has a bad guy, right? Do you remember the bad guy's name, the villain? Haman. Haman. does not like the Jewish people. He cannot stand them. He hates them. He wants nothing more than to see them wiped off the earth. So he comes up with this plot, this incredibly twisted plot to annihilate all the Jews living in Persia. And he gets his boss, Xerxes, because Haman is Xerxes' right-hand man, to authorize all this. Xerxes does, not knowing that Esther is Jewish. So then what happens later on is Mordecai, another important figure. Uh, He's Esther's cousin who has helped raise her. He sends a message to Esther pleading with her. He says, listen, you've you got to use your influence and you got to use your position as queen to speak to your husband and to get him to change his mind. At first, Esther doesn't want to do it. She knows that Xerxes is a loose cannon. He's a wild card. He doesn't like it when people stand up to him. Gosh, he already banished his first one. What if he banishes Esther? Or what if he kills her? So she hesitates. She gets cold feet. That's when Mordecai sends this reply. This is from Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. This is one of the most powerful passages in the entire story, if not the most powerful passage, in my opinion, of the entire story. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet, at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise some other place, when you and your relatives will die, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. This is a powerful moment of collaboration. Esther has a choice. God has built freedom into her. She can choose to ignore what's happening, which is not what God wants, or she can use her influence, speak to the king. And maybe God's people will be saved. And I love how Mordecai puts it. He says, hey, Esther, if you, keep, if you keep quiet at a time like this, in other words, if you choose not to collaborate with God, we might say, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from some other place. I mean, come on. Yes, God gives us freedom, but God is also sovereign. And ultimately, you know, they're going to be saved. But who knows if perhaps you are made queen. And notice, by the way, that phrase is in the past tense or the passive voice. It's not that she made herself queen, she was made queen. Yeah, Xerxes made her queen, but again, in an ultimate sense, God made her queen. Perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. You know what happens? Spoiler alert Esther speaks to the king. God's people are saved. That's one example of collaboration in Scripture. And there are many examples we could talk about, but you probably want to leave at some point this morning. That's one example of collaboration in Scripture where God honors human freedom. And God also invites us to partner with Him, to collaborate with Him in the writing of our stories. Folks, far too often, we don't respond to God's gracious invitation to collaborate with Him in the writing of our stories. And consequently, we settle for Far less than God intends. This happens every day. The year before I became a pastor, I was living in Kentucky and I was working on a pastoral counseling degree. Well, one night my friends and I had been studying and it must have been midterms because I remember we were studying all night and we got tired and we decided to put down the books and to go to a local Applebee's because after a certain hour, Applebee's has half-off appetizers and of course we were in school we didn't have a lot of money and so yeah we can go out to eat and enjoy some half-off appetizers and take a break from study so we go to the Applebee's and the hostess is there and sets us at our table well we must have waited for about 20 minutes for a server to come by but the server never came so I thought well maybe there's some confusion maybe there's some miscommunication nobody knows we're sitting over here so I went to go find the hostess but the hostess was gone I couldn't find any servers The only person I could find who was working was the bartender. So I thought, okay, well, maybe the bartender can send somebody to our table or maybe we can order our food through him. So I was just there at the bar standing up. I was waiting to get his attention. He was serving another customer. There was this guy. He was sitting at the bar about five feet away. He was by himself, and he looked at me, and he said, hey. I said, hey. He said, what's your name? said, Chris, what's your name? told me his name. Over the next three to five minutes, I learned a little bit about this guy's story. I learned that he had been married. He was divorced. He and his ex-wife had a nine-year-old daughter together. And even though the daughter and the ex-wife lived in the same community, he only saw his daughter about once a month. And his life basically consisted of waking up in the morning, go to work, go to Applebee's, have a drink at the bar, go home. You know what he did the next day? Same thing all over again. Get up, go to work, go to Applebee's, have a drink, go home. Get up, go to work, go to Applebee's, have a drink, go home. Get up, go to work, go to Applebee's, have a drink, go home. And as I walked away, my heart went out to that guy. And I just thought how easy it is for us to go through the motions. God has so much more in mind for us as human beings. The truth is, folks, God has so much more in mind for all of us, for you, for me, for everybody. So God invites us by grace to partner with him, collaborate with him in the writing of our stories. And here's the really good news this morning. I don't care who you are, what you've done, what your background is, for all of us today, our stories aren't over yet. Our stories aren't over yet. There is still more to be written. I love what Paul says here. This is Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. Check it out. Uh, these words are on the screen. This is Paul writing to the people of Colossae. So we have not stopped praying for you. What a great ministry to offer our congregation. Don't stop praying. We have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you What? complete knowledge of his not even partial knowledge, complete knowledge of his will, and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding, then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. What's the point of knowing God's will according to Paul? The point of knowing God's will is to lead lives, live lives that honor and please the Lord and to produce every kind of good fruit. What's the fruit? Well, that's the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so, folks, here's where this gets really practical. When it comes to the major life decisions... Maybe I should take this job. Maybe I shouldn't take this job. Maybe I should marry this person. Maybe I shouldn't marry this person. When it comes to the major life decisions or even the smaller decisions, whatever the decision might be, and this is up here on the screen, we ask ourselves these questions. Is this decision going to honor and please the Lord? Is this decision going to glorify God? Is this decision going to help me produce fruit as a disciple of Jesus Christ? And if the answer is no, we don't pursue it. And if the answer is yes, we pursue it. Now, are we always going to get this right? No. I mean, come on, we're human beings, and because of our sinfulness, because of our fallenness, because of our lack of faith, we don't always make the right decisions in life. I don't always make the right decisions. You don't always make the right decisions. None of us do. But here's the cool thing about God. God takes our mess-ups, God takes our failures, God takes our mishaps, our screw-ups, our bad decisions, and God redeems them. God makes something good out of them. One of my favorite examples of this is in the story of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. God comes to this guy named Abraham. At the time, his name was Abram. And God tells Abram and his wife Sarai, who would later become Sarah, that they're going to have a son. And that through this son, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This was the start of the people of Israel. The issue was Sarah was well beyond childbearing years. So, Sarah and Abraham did not take God at his word. They did not trust God here. So, they took it upon themselves to create a family. Do you remember what happened? Abraham had a relationship with Hagar, who was Sarah's servant. Hagar became pregnant, gave birth to a son. Do you remember his name? Ishmael. What did God do? God didn't miss a beat. God took Ishmael, this beautiful child. God blessed them. God made them the father of his own nation, even while still fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham and Sarah. And Sarah later gave birth to Isaac. You see, God takes our screw-ups and God redeems them. God did this in the Bible. God does this even out today in the year 2022. God will always do this. Find comfort in that. Find assurance in that. Find peace in that. Folks, we serve a God who invites us by grace to collaborate with him and the writing of our stories. My encouragement to you today, allow God, have God be the primary writer, the main writer of your life story. As Dwight L. Moody, the great evangelist once said, give your life to God. He could do far more with it than you can. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, help us to collaborate with you when it comes to our stories. We don't always do this. We don't always listen to you. We don't always seek you. Oftentimes, we're more interested in ourselves and our agendas than we are in what you would have for us to do. So God, please forgive us and remind us that your redemptive grace is always at work, that you work all things for good, as Paul says in Romans 8. We love you, God. We praise you. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.